and the response he calls for. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude identifies himself as the brother of James and that's James, the brother of Jesus, who is a prominent, who is prominent in the Jerusalem church, well known to Jewish background Christians in Palestine in the first century. But that also means that Jude is a half-brother to Jesus, the Jude mentioned in Mark 6.3. Now, he wasn't a believer during Jesus' earthly ministry, but became one after our Lord's death and resurrection, present in the upper room when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. So he's been part of the church from its beginning. But notice Jude doesn't say he's the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. And that's because it's not being related to Jesus that gives him authority. It is being the servant of Jesus Christ. Someone who's called and committed to doing Jesus' will. Someone who knows he's accountable to the Lord Jesus for fulfilling the work that Jesus has given him to do. That gives him authority to write to Jesus' people. And the people he writes to are Jesus' people, Jesus' people because of the work of God, his initiative, his love, his power, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. They're people who've been called by God through the gospel. The gospel message, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is the message through which God himself addresses us and calls us into his people. And says Jude, they are loved by God the Father in believing in his Son. As our Lord said to his first followers, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That we are loved by the Creator God is such a basic Christian conviction that we can often pass over it. But it's actually the bedrock on which we build our lives. And so, believer, as I said a couple of weeks ago, because there's lots that goes on in our services, believer, if you take nothing else away from this morning, take this away as your reality. You are loved, believing in Jesus, by the Almighty God. You are loved by God, loved in the giving of his Son to save us. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, you're someone who can face the present. Whatever is happening in your life at the moment, you're someone who can face the present saying with Jeremiah, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. His mercies never end. They knew every morning that's true for you. Oh, you're someone who can face the present and the future with Paul's words in your ears that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything, any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's worth pausing to note, isn't it? Every time we come across it, even if it's just a word in an introduction, believing in Jesus, we are loved. And it's worth noting and worth 
remembering, worth giving thanks for every day. And as I say, whatever else happens today, whatever else you hear, I hope trusting the Lord Jesus, you can give thanks today, tonight, that you have been loved by the almighty creator God. Believers, called, loved, and yes, kept by God for the Lord Jesus. See, Jude's thinking of believers being kept safe till the last day. Believers as though the Father, as those the Father has given to the Lord Jesus his inheritance. And so in this brief greeting, we actually meet two characteristic features of Jude's letter. Firstly, his confidence in God to save his people. A confidence he'll return to at the end of the letter when he gives glory to the God who is able to keep believers from falling and to present us in his presence without blemish and with great joy. See, Jude writes out of that confidence that his letter will be heeded for God's at work he knows in the lives of Jesus' people committed to saving them. And we should have that confidence that our salvation is the work of God. And so it's certain where we give ourselves to keeping on trusting and obeying the Lord Jesus. And we should have that same confidence in God for our brothers and sisters, a confidence that will move us to speak like Jude when we see danger on the horizon. Confidence that our God will use our words to move our brothers and sisters to persevering faithfulness. That's the first characteristic note, confidence in God. And the second characteristic note, I hope you saw it, is love. You see, to our ears, Jude can sound quite fierce with example after example of judgment on sin in verses 5 to 17. But actually, Jude is writing to those he knows are loved, whom he wants to know, experience, verse 2, more of that love. That's the new feature in that greeting. Grace, mercy, mercy and peace. They were actually pretty traditional Jewish greetings. But he says, mercy and love be multiplied to you. He wants them to know more of that love. He's actually writing to people whom he addresses as beloved, verse 3 and 17. Dear friends uh, is the CSB translation, and let's face it, it's anemic, right? They are beloved. That's how Jude thinks of Christians, beloved of God, beloved of Christ. Oh, and the main response in verse 21 to the presence of these lawless people is Jude telling themselves to keep themselves in the love of God. Jude is writing to believers whom he knows are loved and whom he loves who are precious, and he is writing as someone who thinks that at the heart of being a Christian is being loved by God and keeping yourself in the love of God. Now, we should note that. For often, repudiation of the standards of God's law is made in the name of love. But the lawless behaviour Jude will address is loveless. It's a denial of love of God who has loved us, and it's harmful, not helpful, to his loved people. So Jude is writing to believers, called, loved, kept by God, whom he wants to know more of the blessings of relationship with God through Christ, 
more of his mercy, peace and love. And so in a sense, he's writing to us as believers in Jesus because we are called loved and kept. But can we know any more about these first recipients of the letter, their background, where and when they might be living? Well, yes, from the contents of Jude's letter. Noting the form of the argument he uses, his use of the Old Testament and what are called Jewish apocalyptic writings which you may or may not have heard of, like Enoch in verses 14 to 15 and the Testament of Moses in verse 9. You know, using those works. Oh, and his reference to the oral teaching of the apostles, verse 17, not to their writings. Oh, and noting the fact that he is the brother of James and his introduction suggests that James is still living, still a force in early Jewish Christianity. It's highly probable that Jude is writing to Jewish background believers who are familiar not only with the Old Testament but with those popular Jewish apocalyptic works. Uh, Jewish believers who are probably scattered amongst a wider Gentile population by earlier persecution, a a Gentile population who will probably tolerate the behaviour of these false brethren. And so the, the letter is actually probably quite early in the history of the church, early in the second half of the first century, before these believers would have had access to the letters of Paul and John, before even the written Gospels. It's a window, in a sense, into early Jewish Christianity. But why is he writing to them? Well, I've said it's to address antinomianism, which is another big word you can you know, store up. It'll come into use one day. right? Uh, the teaching that rejects the authority of Jesus' command and God's law in the life of believers. But here's how Jude puts his reasons for writing. Dear friends, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people, who were designated for this judgment long ago, have come in by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and law. So Jude is very clear about why he's writing, clear about the outcome he hopes will come from his letter and the circumstances which has prompted him to write this letter now instead of the letter he was planning to write about their shared salvation. Jude says he wants them on reading this letter to commit to contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that should be the outcome for us when we're also taught by Jude of the insidious character and danger of the behaviour and teaching of those he's exposing. But what does that mean, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Well, what's the faith for which we must contend? The faith here is not our believing, our having faith. It's actually the term for what Christians believe. And it's characterised as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now the saints are actually all believers, not special believers. Believers are routinely called saints or holy ones in the New Testament letters because the work of Jesus has actually cleansed us, fitted us for God's presence so All believers in Jesus are now God's holy people. We're all saints. And what's been delivered to believers once and for all is not some creed, 
but the gospel, the gospel message preached by the apostles and the response it calls for. The gospel message is called the faith because it's a message that demands our faith and responding to it with faith, saying we believe it's true both in its facts, its interpretation of the facts and its in its promises is what makes us Christians. The gospel message is the substance of what we believe because this message has definite content. We know that content from the gospels and from the summary of the apostles preaching in Acts and that content's also summarised in statements like Jesus is Lord in Romans 10 or Paul's longer summary in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I passed on to you as of most important, this is the gospel that they believe for salvation, I passed on to you as what is most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So as you heard, the content of the gospel message focuses on Christ, on what he's done and, and what it means. And so that content is fixed once and for all because Jesus' coming, his ministry, his death and resurrection won't be repeated. And the gospel, and, and so the faith, says Jude, has been delivered once and for all by the apostles, those appointed by Christ, eyewitnesses of his resurrection sent out into the world with his gospel. And because there will be no new eyewitnesses to those events of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection, there will be no new apostles. And so the message they bring is once for all. And so the faith is not open to all alteration. It too is once for all. And nor is understanding of the response it calls for open to alteration. See, the gospel calls for repentance and faith in Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord, not me, not you, and living with him as our Lord, doing all that he has taught us. That response to the gospel message that does not change is also not open to change. For that response follows directly, intrinsically, from the content of the gospel, from confessing the truth of the gospel, that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ the boss of all. So you cannot believe the gospel without committing to living your life in obedience to the Lord Jesus, God's exalted son to whom every knee will bow and who will be our judge on the last day. The Lord, who has made known his will, his teaching, in the apostolic writings his spirit inspired, his will which is the fulfilment of all the Old Testament, including God's law. You see, to sever Christ from the Old Testament, the scriptures, including the law that spoke of Christ's death and resurrection, as those who reject the law as God's law do, to sever Christ from the Old Testament is to abandon the gospel, the faith, for another faith of our own making. But it's 
the message of the gospel, this faith that Jude calls his readers to contend for. And as I've said to the children, the word translated contend was a word used for the concentrated effort of the athlete in competition, laying it all out there to win. And so contend here speaks of making a focused effort, expending your energy, not for victory in some race or wrestling match, but for the faith. To make an all-out effort to maintain the purity of the gospel message we've received from the apostles unchanged and the clarity of the response it calls for uncompromised. For message and response are inseparable. To deny the consequences for our behaviour of confessing Jesus as Lord, the ethical consequences of the faith, is actually to deny the faith, to deny the gospel. But how do we contend? Now, now some people take this verse negatively. That is, you contend for the faith by identifying and attacking every doctrinal deviation you encounter. And it's in this sense that this verse is used to justify many keyboard warriors. Now, of course, we do need to be able to identify wrong doctrine. But it's actually the behaviour of these people that Jude's particularly concerned about. Behaviour, as he'll demonstrate in verses 5 to 19, which is inconsistent with the faith and brings God's judgment. But he'll actually go on in verses 20 to 25 to tell them how to contend for the faith. Let me just read you a couple of them. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's actually how we contend for the gospel. It's it's positive. And, And we'll look at that more next week. But we contend for the faith not primarily by attacking error, but by living for Christ, by living a life of faith, hope and love in the power of the Spirit. But that's for next week. Why does Jude feel he needs to make this appeal? Verse 4, some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. He needs to make this appeal because of the presence amongst his readers of some people who he says have come in by stealth. You know, Christians are often very naive. Yet we expect people, even false teachers, to be upfront and open, to act like followers of Jesus when they're not. One of the reasons we need to put in effort to preserve the faith is that they won't be honest. They won't come in amongst us and say, I'm introducing a false and idolatrous religion amongst you that will kill you forever. Very few of them do that. What we often see is a determined obscuring of their agenda until they've established influence, one of following, occupied positions of power. We see an ambiguous affirmation of truth, a justification of sin in religious language, a protestation of good methods. And so they'll say, for example, oh, I believe in the resurrection. Well, actually, they mean something entirely different. They want to say the bones of Jesus are in Palestine and 
Oh, yeah, I kind of get a sense that Jesus' spirit goes on. That's not the resurrection, but they'll use the word. Or they'll use the language of love while defying God's commands which teach us how to love and accuse their opponents of being unloving. They come in by stealth, says Jude, and he says they are ungodly. And that's Jude's key description of them, recurring in verses 14 to 15 and 18. So these are people who, even though the word God might be on their tongues often, live as if God does not exist, can't articulate his will. They live as people who show they have no fear of the Lord by their rejection of God's commands. And that ungodliness, says Jude, is expressed in two ways. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. That is, they use God's goodness, his kindness, mercy and patience as an excuse for this sensual indulgence. Now, that term sensual indulgence could include gluttony and greed, but it's usually focused on sexual immorality, debauchery, sexual permissiveness. They make grace an excuse to fulfilling their sexual appetites in whatever way pleases them, claiming that they're justified by faith, freed from the requirement to obey the law, that all's forgiven, they ignore God to do whatever they please. And that ungodliness is also seen in denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. Jude uses these two terms that speak of the Lord Jesus' supremacy to bring out both the treachery and the folly of their behaviour. Master is a term usually used of God in the New Testament, but it's also used was used in the wider society for the master of household slaves, the one who has the right to direct his servants, whose directions govern their day-to-day lives. And Lord speaks of Jesus as the universal judge, the one to whom every knee will bow, the one to whom we will all give account. Both terms speak of Jesus' absolute right to our soul loyalty and obedience. But these people are deliberately setting aside his authority in favour of their own. And that's both treacherous because it's saying you can be a member of Jesus' household while deliberately undermining his rule of his household. And foolish, for he is Lord, the judge all will bow the knee to. And Jude assures his readers that these are people who were, it says, designated for this judgment long ago. Now, I've included in this slide the CSB's marginal translation, alternate translation, and the NIV's translation. The alternate translation is whose judgment was written about long ago. And literally the phrase reads, who from long ago have been written about beforehand under this judgment. And I think in this context, the CSB alternative, the NIV translation, is better. You see, the point Jude is making is that God's not taken by surprise by these people or their behaviour, nor should we be. These kind of people have been encountered before in the scriptures and the scriptures have already pronounced their judgment on them. In fact, that's what Jude is going to persuade his readers of in verses 5 to 16 with those many references to the scriptures. He's going to show from scripture 
and associated Jewish writings, some of which are unfamiliar to us, but well known to his audience, that the character and behaviour of these people is one scripture has already identified and condemned. And so to entertain it and continuing it is very dangerous. But why the need to persuade? That need to persuade might surprise us because hasn't church history demonstrated time and again the error and destructiveness of antinomianism? Well, yes, that's true, but this church is young. They have no body of Christian teaching easily accessible to them. They don't have the letters of John or Paul. Yes, they've been taught by the apostles, but they don't have a resident apostle. They can consult on everything that comes up. And these people, remember, have come in by stealth. And the natural inclination of believers is to welcome others who say they're believers. And these people are probably making their claims quite confidently, talking eloquently of Christian freedom and of the wonderful dreams that are guiding them. And so some would be attractive to them, attracted to them. They need to be shown their error. But more importantly, as a general principle, Persuasion from scripture gives believers both an opportunity to grow in their understanding of God's will and above all, it creates alone the conviction in Christian hearts which is necessary for believers to act. In this case, the conviction to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints for they then know that the action needed is the will of their God, not just of some human authority. Well, we'll tease out Jude's biblical argument next week because it'll take some time, as well as look at the positive way Jude says believers ought to contend for the faith. But three takeaways from this long introduction. Firstly, Jude calls for us to contend for the faith in the face of the lawless behaviour of these people, in the face of their commitment to sensual indulgence, because denial of the moral consequences of the gospel is a denial of the gospel itself. Denial of the moral consequences of the gospel, that we have to live by Jesus' word, is actually to practise idolatry to serve a different God and not the God who has called us to faith in the Lord Jesus, not the God who loves us, the God who will keep us, the God who has written his law on our hearts in the new covenant. And, and we see that. We see that it's a different religion in those who want to say that believing the gospel, believing a Christian, doesn't require people to conform their lives now to Christian sexual morality. See, what have they done? They've abandoned the authority of the Lord Jesus over his people through his word to worship the idol of self-determination where our desires, our determination to be our authentic selves becomes the ultimate authority. That is to substitute worship of Jesus for the idolatry of self. It is, not, it is a different faith, not the faith once delivered to the saints, and it brings a different outcome. You see, the freedom it brings is not the freedom to serve one another in love by dying to self. No, it's freedom to do what seems right in their own eyes is actually slavery. Slavery to our own desires and it brings death. 
denial of the moral consequences of the gospel, the change that comes from having the law written by the Spirit on our hearts is a denial of the gospel. For it denies Jesus as Lord and it severs his connection with the Old Testament scriptures that explain the gospel and which the gospel fulfills. So don't be taken in by those who proclaim grace brings freedom from the requirement that the holy God requires holy lives from his people, lives that conform to his holy will, revealed in his word, revealed in his law. And that brings us to the second takeaway, the need to be alert. Then as now, there are false teachers who teach seductive ideas of Christian freedom, claiming freedom for themselves to abandon what was delivered once for all to the saints, freedom to live lives of self-indulgence. They won't declare themselves as such. So the responsibility is ours. And we equip ourselves for that responsibility both by knowing God's word and seeking to live the Christian life by practising the godly life the gospel calls for. When we do that, we'll be sensitive to deviations from that godly life and alert to the lies that support departing from doing all that the Lord Jesus has taught us to do. We'll sense it. And thirdly, we see here the need to make effort. That's what Jude is calling for from us, to contend, to show an unwavering commitment to the Lord Jesus as our Master and Lord by making the effort to preserve his gospel uncorrupted and the response it calls for unconfused. Now that effort is not something you can delegate to someone else. The stakes are too high both for yourself and others to be lazy. For as you heard Jude write, verse 15, the Lord will come to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts they've done. Stakes are high, but more. As those who believing the gospel can be addressed as those who are called, loved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and the Jesus at its core should be precious to us. We should with our whole hearts want his gospel, the message by which God brings us to know and enjoy every day his grace and love. We should want that faith preserved, uncorrupted and unconfused so that the Lord Jesus is honoured, not dethroned by some idol, not having his reputation tarnished by association with sin, not having his rule over his people undermined by human lies and craftiness. We should want the gospel preserved uncorrupted and unconfused because it honours our Lord Jesus. To contend for the gospel is to love him. And that should be enough reason, isn't it? To make the effort to exert ourselves with every fibre of our being for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What that looks like, we'll see next week. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in a world where uh, many seem to have slipped in and have positions of authority in churches and yet are denying you by not living the life 
your word calls for. Uh, We pray that we would so love our Lord Jesus, so be grateful for the grace that we've received in believing him, that we would be people who contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, contend by living ourselves godly lives and by holding fast to the truth that Jesus is Lord and to be his people is to live doing what he says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.